This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Lydia, Caleb J., Theo Z., and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F., who asks, Is John actually the same person as Elijah, or is Elijah's spirit in John's body, or is John like a new Elijah? Your third option is the closest, Caleb. When Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah, he doesn't mean that Elijah was reincarnated as John, or that Elijah's spirit is dwelling in John's body. Instead, he's saying that there is a prophecy of Elijah's return, and John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Elijah was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, which made him a kind of representative of the whole group. That's why he appears alongside Moses at the Transfiguration. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and together the law and the prophets stand for the whole Old Testament. John the Baptist has been called the last and best of the Old Testament prophets, because he was the one who announced the coming of the Messiah, which is who all the earlier prophets pointed to. That's why Jesus says that John is the fulfillment of the promise that Elijah would return. And now Lydia asks, can God sin? No, Lydia, he can't. Sin is unrighteousness, and God is, by definition, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and perfectly good. Now, let's be careful how we phrase a question like this, though, because if I say God cannot sin, that sounds like I'm saying there's something he doesn't have the power to do, even though he's supposed to be all-powerful. How can God be unable to sin when even a human being has the power to sin? Well, sin is not a power. Sin is bondage. When we sin, we become slaves to unrighteousness. The only way to break free of that bondage is to be delivered from it by a sinless, perfectly righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Caleb J. Let's give Caleb a round of applause. Here's Caleb's question. Is it a sin to watch football on Sunday? Oh, Caleb, this is going to be fun. Uh, let's buckle up and prepare to be challenged. Actually, wait, before we dive in, consider this. Right now, in the 21st century, this is a question that for a lot of Christians has a really obvious answer, and that answer would be, no, of course not. 
I think it's fair to say that for the vast majority of evangelical Christians today, the only obligation we have on Sunday, the Lord's Day, is to try not to miss church, assuming we don't have something else really important going on that day. And that's about it. All that Old Testament stuff about remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, well, that's either been fulfilled by Jesus and no longer applies, or it just means we should go to church on Sunday, if practical. But it wasn't that long ago that Christians everywhere would have agreed that, yes, it was a sin to work on the Lord's Day, a sin to conduct business of any kind, and even a sin to enjoy worldly recreation. Because of the influence of Christianity in our culture, all the businesses back then, apart from the essential ones, would have been closed on a Sunday. Now it's just Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A. Schools wouldn't schedule activities on a Sunday back then. And if some sporting event took place on the Lord's Day, conscientious Christians wouldn't participate. In fact, there's a famous sports movie called Chariots of Fire, which is about a famous runner in the Olympics. And because this guy was a Christian, he wouldn't even run on a Sunday. So I guess the question is, who was right? Christians of the past or Christians today? And how did things change? Let's start by considering whether the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy still applies. The Sabbath is what theologians call a creation ordinance. In other words, it's something God established at the very beginning, before the fall. Other creation ordinances include marriage and work. Now, because they come before sin, we recognize that they're not just necessary evils, but positive goods. They're part of the way that the world was meant to be from the very beginning. And that means that the Sabbath is still in effect, even though the way we observe it has changed from Old Testament to New Testament. So now the question is, how do we observe the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, in the New Testament church? So let's see what the Westminster Confession says about this. A reading from the Westminster Confession, we find this. The Sabbath is kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship, and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So, this means we should prepare in advance and make whatever arrangements are necessary so that on the Lord's Day, we can do two things. First, we can rest from what they call worldly employment and recreations. So, the things you do to make money and the things you do for relaxation and fun. Now, this would mean not working your job on Sunday, but also not pursuing recreational activities. You rest from these things to make room to do other things. And that's the second point. Second, we spend the day in what they call public and private exercises of worship, which would include, yes, going to church. That's the public part. 
but also other activities focused on God, which might include devotional reading, uh, Bible study, Christian fellowship, and what have you. Now, the Westminster Divines also allow for performing what they call duties of necessity and mercy. In other words, serving and helping other people or doing essential or necessary work. An emergency room doctor, for example, may be performing a duty of necessity and someone who visits a neighbor in need and offers help would be performing a duty of mercy. Now, with that in mind, would watching a football game qualify? Well, it's not a public or private exercise of worship, and even a rabid fan would probably have to admit that it isn't a duty of necessity or mercy. So, yes, a strict reading of the Westminster Confession would say don't do that on a Sunday. Not because there's anything wrong with watching a football game, but because the Sabbath is meant for something else. and God wants us to use that time for the purpose intended. Now, having said this, I want to acknowledge that there is some disagreement over how to observe the Sabbath, even among Presbyterians. And it's very common for pastors to take an exception to the prohibition on recreation on the Sabbath. Uh, the reason is that they believe it's possible to enjoy those recreations without sin in a worshipful way. They also worry that when Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, we need to be careful about too legalistic an observance. I have a lot of respect for these concerns. At the same time, though, I want to push back because especially in the 21st century, when we have such a low view of the Sabbath and so much pressure to completely ignore it, we need this day of rest now more than ever. It's fascinating to note that while in the church our tendency is to minimize the Sabbath, I'm noticing a lot of authors outside the church arguing that this ancient idea of Sabbath would be a really good idea to learn from in our technologically advanced but often soul-crushing culture. So you'll have to wrestle with what you think about this argument and where the proper line is for Sabbath observance. But as you do that, I'm going to encourage you not to dismiss the Westminster view out of hand. It might just be as hard as it is that we all need as much Sabbath as we can get. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Theo Z wants to know, where did God get his power? Well, Theo, God didn't get his power from anywhere because power is one of God's attributes. It's who he is. And God has always been who he is, which means he's always been omnipotent, all powerful. It's common for us to think of things like power and justice and love and knowledge as things apart from God, properties that he has acquired somehow. But in fact, these are all who he is. We can only know power or justice or love or knowledge as they flow from him, and they are only perfect as they exist in him. And now Susanna wants to know, why are some Bible names so common, like Samuel or Caleb, but names like Habakkuk and Susanna are not? 
Well, names go in and out of fashion, Susanna, which is why you can sometimes guess when a person was born based on their name alone. That's true in the general population, and it's true in the church as well. The popularity of Bible names usually reflects how well-known the characters in the Bible are, but sometimes it's the opposite. We probably have more kids running around these days named after Old Testament prophets than we've had since the 1800s. I think the rise of homeschooling and Christian schools have contributed to this. Now, there are a few Bible names, by the way, that I would love to see parents use. One of my favorites is Sanballat, which is the name of one of the warlords threatening Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah. I used to tell Lori when we first got married that if we had twins, we would name them after the Assyrian kings Ezerhaddon and Ashurbanipal, who both get shout-outs in the Old Testament. Now, if you want a cool Old Testament name that isn't one of the bad guys, how about Zerubbabel? He was a prototype of Christ mentioned in the book of Zechariah, which, <laughs> by the way, isn't such a bad name either. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.